if, if, if you've got lots of questions about fasting, I hope you do come next week because we want to talk about, there's a, there's a lot of, I would say, poor teaching about fasting that's out there. One is, is that you're not supposed to talk about your fast when you fast, and I would say that's not true. So I'm going to be talking about that next week. Uh, and so uh, sometimes people say, well, you're only supposed to fast if you can connect it to extended times of prayer. That's not true. That's a, it's, a, it's a misnomer. And so I'm going to be talking a little bit about that next week as well. Fasting is a great way to talk to people about Christ. You know, the, 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 the prohibition against talking about it if you're talking about it to boast about yourself. But if you're talking about your fast to boast about the Lord, that's where Jesus starts with Matthew chapter 5. But again, I'm going to be talking about that next week. So I'm just saying, if you're fasting, don't be afraid. If, if, if you're the, the red meat eater and you've got this group that goes out to lunch with your coworkers and you order the salad and everybody's looking at you like you've got a third eye, then you should say, hey, I'm doing a fast with my church. And it's something that we do to be spiritually healthy. We're going to be talking about it next week. You should come, right? And so these are great opportunities for you to talk and to reach out to people along the way. So we're going to be talking about that next week. We may or may not do the second Part. We'll have to see. If not, I'm either going to blog it or I can, I'll preach it and record it and we'll put it uh, as a, a podcast. So, but I do want to just talk some things about tonight and to, just to kind of get our thoughts moving in the right direction. I'll tell you a, a little a quick story. Something happened a couple of weeks ago. I was, I was leaving the office and uh, over behind CNU and I needed gas. And so I often stop at the 7 Eleven there off of Work Boulevard, just up from, from CNU. And so I pulled into the gas station, and, uh, and so right when I pulled in, Nate calls, and, uh, and so I, I take the call, and I don't know whether it's true or not, right, but my mother has, 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 uh, has worked into my brain that you'll blow up if you use your cell phone while you're pumping gas, and so, right, even if it's not true, I'm stricken with that fear. So, so I'm in the car, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm talking to, to Nate, and, and, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's around rush hour, and so the, the gas station is busy, and so I'm at the, there's, there's there's a, I'm at the farthest gas pump to the left, farthest away from the 7-Eleven, and I'm facing away from Work Boulevard, and so there's a gas pump uh, in the middle that's not occupied, and, and then the one just on the other side of that, there's someone there too. And so as I'm sitting there, there's an elderly couple comes in in this gargantuan truck, this massive pickup truck. And, uh, and so they decide they're going to parallel park, right, in between me and the other car, and they're, and they're cutting really nasty looks at me because I'm sure they think that I've already paid for my gas and I'm just sitting there, right, talking on the phone. And, and so they're trying to parallel park and finally the, the, the man gets out and he keeps cutting me these terrible looks like I should just drive away to give them more room. And, and, um, and so he's, you know, back up and he's doing this and you've got, and so it takes them a few minutes to get, to get lined up and, and they finally get in there and he goes to pump the gas and guess what he realizes? Yes, it is. It's on the wrong side. You've done that before, right? Yeah, yeah. So he's getting angrier by the second. Right? He's angry at me. He's angry that he's done all this work. And so he gets back in the car, slams the door. They pull out. So by now I say, Nate, I, I say, Nate do I sound distracted? He's like, yeah, you sound really distracted. Are you all right? I said, I got to tell you what I'm watching here. So I'm just letting it, I'm giving him the play-by-play. So they pull out, right? You know what they do, right? They pull out and they go around to the other side which really doesn't help you because the gas cap doesn't move just because you move, right? And so, so they pull up, and, and, they, and I see them slow down, and I'm telling Nate, because I can't hear them talking, but I know what they're saying. You know, he's saying, the gas cap is still on the other side, right? So then they pull back out. They do a big turnaround. They come back around one more time, 
and they're slowing down. And I said, they're going to do it again, Nate. They're going to pull up to the same spot, right? I, you, I said, you can't believe this. And so then they, they, they pass it so they don't do it. Then they do, they pull up into the corner. They do like a 122-point turn because the truck's so big, right? They're doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this. So they finally, a gas pump opens up on the right side where they're supposed to be. And they pull up to the gas pump. I said, Nate, they made it. I wanted to clap, right? When they get out and you guys are doing great, right? So they get out of the truck, and the next thing I know, I mean, in just in a matter of seconds, I see the truck speeding down Warwick Boulevard with the gas cap door open and the gas cap pounding the paint right off the side of the truck. Now, at first I thought, you know, that old couple just got gas and sped away, right? But I realized they can't do that because it's a pay at the pump and they weren't there long enough. And so this is, I don't know, but this is what I've deduced. I've deduced is that he realized, after all of that, he realized he probably did not have his wallet, Right? <laughs> And so, so they're speeding down the, I can't imagine the conversation they were having, right, on the way home. And so I just, I think, you know, there's moments in our lives where we are just so stinking irritated with ourselves, are we not? Mo- moments in our lives where we experience frustration that is self-inflicted. There's moments in our lives where we just, we get so frustrated, but, but the thing about frustration is that it's a superficial feeling. The thing about frustration is that it's a surface emotion. The thing about frustration is that we, we feel it strongly when it comes on, but then it goes away pretty quick, right? Were you with me there? Regret is something different. Regret is something that's deeper. R- regret is something that, that starts and builds. R- regret is something that when it settles into our heart, it begins to grow. Regret is something that it has the power and the ability to begin to overshadow every other part of our lives. Regret, if it goes undealt with, it really becomes the filter that we begin to see all of our lives through. So on Thursday, I was with the Nolan family. Is April's in here somewhere. Is April in here? She's back there. So our heart goes out to the Nolan. Is Catherine here tonight too? Is she over here? She's over here, right? So Sean passed away on on Thursday, and, and, uh, and so I was there with them on Thursday afternoon, and we had a beautiful time praying together. And so I see Tiffany and, and Sean's mom back there too. They are back there. So you guys need to give them hugs after church, right? Just hug them, even if you don't know them. Just love on them. It's a, a, a memorial service here at the Adoration Chapel at 5.30 on, on Monday. And, and we just had a beautiful time praying together on Thursday as a, as a, uh, just with them as a, as, as a family. And, and when I left, he, he passed away later on that day. But, but when I left, I, I got into my car and, and, and I felt like God spoke something to me. I felt like he said to me is, Fred, that's waiting for everyone. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That is waiting for everyone. It's going to look different for all of us, but there is going to come a moment in time where we cease to be. This physical body of ours, it's going to die. We were not born to live here forever. At some point, we're going to breathe our last breath. And that's the thought that God was speaking to my heart. Fred, this, this is waiting for, 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 for everyone. And then I felt like he wanted to say something else, right? So you have that feeling in your heart that God wants. I've never heard his voice, but I feel his voice. And I, and I knew he was going to say something else. So I'm just praying and posturing with the listening ear. And I feel like he asked me this question, which is going to be our springboard for our conversation together tonight. The question I felt like he asked me is, is Fred, why do people wait to face their regrets when their time is too short and their body is too weak. 
me say it again. Why, why do people wait to face their regrets when their time is too short and their body is too weak? Right? And I'm not saying that's Sean. I'm not, I'm not making an accusation. There. I'm just saying God used that picture of him dying to put me in a place to hear this question from him. Does that make sense? And, and so, so I just, I begin to pray, you know, and I knew as God was speaking to me that I was supposed to preach on this this weekend. I was supposed to set aside my sermon. It's a really good sermon. I get irritated sometimes when God does that because I've been working hard on it, right? And, and so, but I knew that there was going to be some people here tonight that needed to hear these things that I'm going to share with you tonight from my heart. And, and uh, a lot of times we have slides. We don't have slides tonight because we started on this message uh, late in the, in the week, but I felt like God spoke to me because I began to say, okay, God, what are some regrets that we can talk about together as a church family? And I felt like he gave me three. That's how I know God is Baptist, even though I'm dying in the world Pentecostal because he speaks to me in three-point sermons. And so, so, so we've got three that, that we're going to talk about together tonight. But before I do that, I want to read you some verses. James 4.14. James 4.14. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. I'm going to get these notes online early next week, so if you're a note taker, you're going to be able to download these, and you can spend some time with it. Psalm 102, verse 11. My life passes as swiftly as the evening shadows. I am withering away like the grass. 1 Chronicles 29, 15. 1 Chronicles 29, 15. We are here for only a moment. Visitors and strangers in the land as our ancestors were before us. Our days on earth are like a passing shadow, gone so soon without a trace. I want our hearts to be gripped tonight with the reality that that moment is waiting for all of us and every single person that's in this room, you have regrets. I have regrets. We, we've all got a list. If we took time tonight, your list might be longer than somebody else's list, but everybody has things in their lives that they have some regrets about. And what I'm saying to you tonight, and I'm preaching to myself tonight, come on, while our bodies still have strength, while our time is not too short, let's do something about our regrets. Can, can we get to the end of 2014, even if we've just dealt with one of them? Come on, let's spend the rest of our lives coming to that moment where we breathe our last with as short of a list as possible. We're, we're all going to have some regrets that we carry with us into that moment of our lives. But come on, there's, some, there's a way that we can live. There's an intentionality that we can bring. There's a courage that can rise in our heart. There's a strength that we can lean onto in the body of Christ and the power of the Spirit of God inside of us to say, I'm going to make that list for me small. And the three that I want to talk about tonight, unconfessed sin, unforgiven offenses, and unrealized dreams. Unconfessed sins, unforgiven offenses, and unrealized dreams. All right, so let's do unconfessed sins first. Come on, it's weighty, isn't it? 2 Samuel chapter 12. There we go. 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. I'm going to try to give you some practical things for each of these tonight. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 13. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One rich, one was rich, and one was poor. 
The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle, and the poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children, and it ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole for having no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel. I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I love this part. If that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more, right? Because with God there's always more and his more is always better. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. And from this time on, here it comes, consequences. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. And this is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. And you did it secretly, but this will happen openly in the sight of all of Israel. And then David confessed to Nathan, and David confessed, come on, to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. I want to talk a little bit about some principles of, of, of confession. I, I want to mention this because then we're going to come back to it at the end. There is a difference between consequences and judgment. Those are two very different things, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But I, I want to share a couple of things just about some principles of, of, of confession. So, you know, one of the things that sometimes I get frustrated about, not with all of, of counseling, but, but with some counselors, that they, they operate off the mantra or the principle that you only talk to this, your, about your sin to people who can help participate in your healing. And, and that can be true to a degree, but one of the things that they often leave out is the principle of confession. That, that there's something to be said for it's, it's not just about your healing, it's about other people's healing. And part of confession is so that other people can heal. And I believe, too, personally, that you can't fully heal until you confess. There's, there's something about your healing that won't come. And so for some of you, you might be stuck in a place of not having healed because you've not been willing to step into a moment of confession. And it could be you've never stepped into a moment of confession because someone said that you don't need to. And I would encourage you to reconsider that. If you've got questions about that, we can talk about that. But even if, even if, there is a confession that needs to happen. I think that there are some practical principles that we need to follow before we step into those, into those moments. So I'm going to give you some of those tonight. Again, I'm going to put these notes online. One is, is the thing that I need to confess keeping the relationship that I'm in from moving forward? Meaning that, that, that you've got to ask yourself the question, is, is this sin that, that's in my life that's hidden, 
that, that no one knows about, that, that if, it's, if it's causing your heart to stay guarded so you don't go deep in relationship with people that you're close to, that's a great indication that it's a sin that you need to talk about. Does that make sense? If it's robbing you of intimacy with others, other people might not even know about it, then it's something that you need to share. Another principle, another principle of, of confession is, is this idea that, 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 that do they have a sense of expectation of needing to know. This is important, right? Because let's say that you're married and, and when you got married, neither one of you were, were living for Christ and you led a pretty riotous life and maybe you made a lot of mistakes, both you. It, it might be that, that years went by and you did a lot of things that you're ashamed of and then when you came to make a commitment to Christ together that you just both said, let's just put the past behind us, right? It might be that you've entered into an agreement with each other. We know we both have junk that we're ashamed of, but we know that God has forgiven us. Let's agree together that we're not going to undo, right? It's not going to help us in our tomorrows, right? If, if, if you've done that, then that's okay. Does that make sense? The, the rule is, is the person that you're in a relationship with, do they have a sense of needing to know, right? And, and, and a great way to measure that is, a great way to measure that is what if they were to find out from someone else, which is another important question that you've got to ask. If you've got something from your past that you've never shared or confessed, and there's a high likelihood that somebody else is going to tell that sin, I would say then you want to beat that person to the punch, right? You, because I have, I have sat in a lot of meetings with people and counseling where somebody finds out about something through someone else, and I have never in all of my life ever heard the person say, I'm so glad I heard it from them and not from you, right? It's always just the opposite, always just the opposite. And let me give you a couple more. I've never heard someone say, I wish you had waited longer to tell me. Not ever. Not ever. I've never heard someone say, I just wish you had waited longer. It's always, it's always just the opposite. If you had, if we could have just, if you could have told me years ago, we could have been working on it all of these years, right? So the other thing that I've never heard anyone say, the person that's done the confessing, I've never, come on, in almost 20 years of pastoral ministry, I've never heard anyone say, you know what, I really liked the feeling of carrying the burden of that secret a lot more. Right, ever. I've never heard someone say, I really liked my life better, even though there might be consequences. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Even though the consequences could be severe, I've never heard them say, I liked my life better when I was living under the shame of a secret that I knew that I needed to tell. There are regrets that we can carry to the last moments of our life, and one of them is unconfessed sin. And you might be here tonight, and you've got some of those. We're saying, come on, step into a place of saying, I'm going to find the courage to talk about these things because I want to heal. I want the people around me to heal. I don't want to carry regrets, and I certainly don't want to give regrets to other people in my last days. Involve others. Don't do anything by yourself, right? If you're here tonight and you're saying, and you know because your heart feels it right now, I've got some things that I've never shared. Don't go home and just figure it out on your own. We're the easiest, the leaders in this church are the easiest people in the world to get a hold of, right? Phone, email, Twitter, Facebook, we're, we're on all of it. You reach out and we'll help you walk through it. Don't do it by yourself. But part of it is this idea that confession doesn't displace consequences, but it does displace judgment. 
And that's one of the principles that we learn from this text. And that's why I went to this one, because I believe in this principle. That, that, that Nathan, even though David confesses, even though, Nathan takes responsi- I mean, even though David takes responsibility for what he's done when Nathan challenges him as the prophet, there are consequences that Nathan declares prophetically that are going to happen in his family. And just because he's confessed doesn't mean those consequences go away. What goes away is God's wrath. What goes away is the judgment that God was going to bring to get him to a place so that he would confess because God chastens those that he loves. The wrath of God is not out of his anger or displeasure. The wrath of God is because in moments like this, it's because he's trying to bring us to a desperation revelation because he knows that our heart is desperate for confession. There's a difference between consequence and judgment. Your confession pushes the stop button on the judgment that God is bringing to your life to bring you to a moment of confession, but there are consequences that are still probably going to play out for you, especially if it's something serious. If it's been a criminal act, there could be restitution. There could be jail time. Does that make sense? What I want to say to you tonight is whatever the consequences are for the sin that you're hiding, it's far less than the judgment of a sovereign God. I would far rather walk out the consequences of my sin than to trifle with the judgment of my creator. If there is a consequence that you have to walk out, then God's going to use that consequence. If there's a consequence that you've got to walk out, even those consequences are under the promise of Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. If there's a consequence, Ryan Matthews is getting ready to come out of a program that he's been in for some time. I can't wait to, for you to hear some more about his story, but, but, but his story is not a pretty one. There's some consequences that he's been walking out, but in those consequences, he's been touching people that he would have never had an opportunity to touch. Don't be afraid. This is the lie the devil is whispering in your ear. The consequences are going to be too great. And you begin to focus on those consequences and you forget about the judgment. The devil doesn't want you to think about the judgment. He wants to keep you trapped. He wants to keep you isolated. And we're saying, come on, if that's you, if you've got that secret from your past, let's take it, put it on the top of the list and say, we're going to deal with that. I'm not going to go to my grave with a regret. I'm going to grow. I'm going to heal. And other people are going to heal around me because of my honesty. This is James 5, 16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. The devil doesn't want you to walk, doesn't want you to walk in the fruit of your confession. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then John 3, a lot of us know John 3.16, but some of the most powerful words in this chapter come after that. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do right come to the light so others can see they are doing what God wants. Confession is about bringing the dark places of your heart into the healing, restorative light of the creator of the universe so that he can heal you and so that you can also be an example for others. Come on, 
1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. We're going to be talking about this next year where Paul simply says, follow me as I imitate Christ. Part of your confession is for your healing, but part of your confession is also to create a momentum, to give an example in this world for other people to follow, that your confession is for you, but it's also to inspire other people. If they can do it, I can do it, and then all of a sudden there's just an outbreak of healing in the hearts throughout the land. All right, unforgiven offenses. Unforgiven offenses. Matthew 7. Matthew 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I'm going to go down to verse 6. This is one of the most misquoted texts in the Bible by people who don't even believe the Bible. I'm going to go to verse 6. Do not judge others. And you will not be judged. Most people quote it that way, and that's how it's written, but the text goes on. Jesus, his sermon continues. And by what we read in the rest of this little sermon, this little homily embedded in the Sermon on the Mount, is that what Jesus is really saying is don't judge others poorly, and you will not be judged poorly. Now, why do I render it that way? I'm not the only one. Lots of people render it that way. It's because when you keep reading in verse 2, you realize Jesus begins to give a lot of instructions about how to do it the right way. And if he didn't want you to do it at all, he wouldn't have taught you how to do it the right way. He would have just said, don't do it. And then the text ends with a command to judge, right? It says, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of your speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Get rid of the log in your own eye. Then... Come on, right? Because And then he doesn't say, stop there. He says, now you can go and help your brother deal with the speck in his eye. Listen to what he says here. People don't quote this verse. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. Wow, that's some pretty, that's right, that's hard stuff right there. They will trample the pearls and they will turn and attack. Jesus is saying here that when we step into moments of being discerning, not judging in the sense that we condemn people and write them off. That's the prohibition. But we are supposed to be discerning about other people. We are supposed to be wise in, in our thoughts of other people, especially if we're in relationship with them, because then we have an opportunity to help bring some accountability to their life. What Jesus is saying here, the judge the right way, is that don't forget about the principle of reciprocity. Because the way that you treat other people, it's going to come back to you. So when you step into a moment of holding someone accountable, think about the way that you would want them to hold you accountable, and that's going to help you do it well. Be just as diligent in self-examination as you are others-focused, right? We know the people, right, who walk around with a whole log truck full of logs hanging off of their face and pointing at other people who are wrong. And Jesus is saying here in the text, he's saying, hey, there are moments and times where you're supposed to help people. There are moments and times where you render a judgment. You see something that's unhealthy in someone's life. You, that's part of being in Christian community. Just make sure you're just as diligent about self-examination as you are others-focused. Be intentional about personal change so that you can help others change. It's powerful, isn't it? He says, hey, deal with those logs so that you can help them deal with the speck. Deal with the stuff that's in your life so that you can help other people deal with the stuff that's in their life. 
And then I think this last part where he's talking about, about swines and pigs, he's saying, be discerning so that you're not harming others or yourself. You've got to be willing to ask the question, God, are you asking me to get involved in this person's life? Because if you're just doing it because it makes you feel important, if you're just doing it because it makes you feel better when you talk about other people being wrong, it's going to hurt them more and it's going to have a negative effect on you. So, so he's saying here, this idea about swines and pigs, th- this, is why, this is where the text goes. He's saying, hey, you've got to make some judgments. You've got to be discerning about, is their heart even in a place where they're ready to receive from you, Right? So he's saying, hey, you've got to be judging. You've got to be discerning. You've got to make good decisions. So let me give you a couple of pointers here. If you've got some unforgiven offenses in your own heart, this, this is what I find. I find that in my life, in my life, the time when I hold on to the offenses longer than I should, it's when I've done everything right. The times where I know that I'm just as at fault, the times where I know that I'm culpable, the times where where I'm at odds with someone and I know it's just as much my fault as it is their fault, those are the times where I forgive a lot easier. Am I I the only one, right? Because I know I'm kind of responsible for this. I think the place that we're vulnerable in and holding offenses is when we're innocent. And there's a difference, there's a difference, there is a difference between judging and forgiving. God asks us to step into places of being discerning. And it might be that you're in a situation where, hey, you've done everything right. You, you, you have examined your own heart. Maybe you've went and talked to someone that you trust who's a little bit farther along in their spiritual journey than you are, and you've told them the situation, and they've said to you, hey, you know what, you, there's nothing that you've done wrong, right? You, you've, you, you've stepped into a place of accountability. And in your innocence... The devil begins to whisper in your ear, you're justified and not forgiving. There is no justification for unforgiveness. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation, there has got to be a willingness in our heart, even if the only way, the thing that we can say, and I was talking with someone about this this week, and they were talking about their own personal story, that their, their wife, when they stepped into a situation like this after some terrible things had happened, their prayer was, God, I... I don't think that I'll ever be able to forgive, but I'm open. You with me? Even if that's the only thing that you can say, that's a great first step. It's a great first step to say, God, help me to find forgiveness in my heart for this other person. And he will every time. And let me give you a couple of practical things and we're going to get to our last one. I want to speak specifically about circumstances and situations where I would use the phrase enough time has passed, right? I'm not talking about, because this could be a whole sermon series unto itself. I'm talking about situations and circumstances that happened some time ago. And, and enough time has passed, I put that in quotation marks, because that's going to be different for every person. Does that make sense? You're asking, has enough time passed? It's, it's one of those things where you know it's just, it's, it's, it should be water under the bridge. It's time to bury the hatchet. I can't think of any more cliches, but you recognize those too. So, so right, it, you just know in your heart, enough's enough, right? If, if that's the situation that you're in, I want to give you some practical steps. You've got to ask the question, are they even open to a relationship, right? Don't be a reconciliation bully. That doesn't go well for anybody. You've got to ask the question, is there any indication from that person that they're even open to a relationship? Because if they're not, then it's only self-serving, and that's not the right motivation. Don't rehash everything when you sit down to talk. 
You might have to talk about a couple of things that just to create some clarifiers, but it should only be in a way that serves moving forward. You can't, you don't, it's, it, the purpose of this, if enough time has passed, is not to figure it all out. It's just to say, you know what, I just, I want to have a friendship with you again. I want our life to be, to, I want you to be in my life and I want to be in your life. Let's just leave that stuff behind. You might have to set boundaries. Forgiveness doesn't mean being vulnerable to being hurt again or being taken advantage of. This is important. Forgiveness doesn't mean being vulnerable to being hurt again. You can forgive, especially if you're innocent, but it's incumbent upon them to rebuild the trust. Be content with small steps and simple expressions. It's not going to pick up, right, from day two, from maybe the relationship that you have. You have to rebuild. Be content with small steps and simple expressions. Again, we're going to get these notes online. All right, let me read you these verses. Ephesians 4.32. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13. I love this. Make allowance for each other's faults. Paul's saying here, don't be surprised that other people are going to fail you, right? We're all imperfect. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. All right, I got one more. Unrealized dreams. Unrealized dreams. Peter and Judas are great study in the Bible by way of contrast and comparison. If you're looking for a, a good study this year, that might be one that you want to get a hold of. Just studying the life of Peter and study the life of Judas and how they, how they parallel, how they contrast. Both Peter and Judas suffered from the same condition. They suffered from the condition of having an unrealized dream. Both of them had preconceived ideas about what the Messiah was going to do and what he was going to accomplish, and they were both wrong, as everyone was. They all thought Jesus was going to come in and establish a political kingdom. They thought that he was going to restore Israel to a political state. But Jesus' journey as a Messiah, right? We know from studying the prophets that he was going to be a suffering Messiah. He was establishing a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. And so Peter and Judas get down to the end, and all of a sudden, they've got regrets. Because they've got an unrealized dream. This isn't what I signed up for. Both Judas and and Peter stepped into the last moments of Jesus' life and then his death with the same heart condition, an unrealized dream. And for Judas, it led to his suicide, and thankfully, Peter, he waited it out. And through waiting, we find this incredible encounter that he has with Jesus. It's what you would call a post-resurrection encounter. I want to read it to you. It's in John 21, 15 through 17. Again, we've taught on this a couple of years ago as a text, and so I'm just I'm going to read it, and there's a lot in here, but I'm just going to make one point from it. It's John 21, 15 through 17. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, right? So this is Jesus, and he's, he's died. He's risen from the dead. It's one of his last post-resurrection appearances to some of the disciples. He's, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. 
Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And you know the story, right? He asks him three times, one for each denial. And a third time he asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Jesus is doing a lot of things there. But one of the things that Jesus is doing there is redefining Peter's dream. He's ministering to Peter in a powerful way. It's a beautiful story. He's saying, Peter, you've got to lay down the dream that you had. You've got to pick up the dream that I have for you. And some of you, you're, you're in a place of frustration and regret because you have an unrealized dream. And one of the reasons why you have an unrealized dream is because it was your dream all along. It's not God's dream for you. There's something to be said for holding fast and standing in a place of faith when you have a dream that God's given to you that's not realized yet and saying, I'm not giving up, that's different. It's something else to stand in a place where the dream that you have is your dream. It's not a dream that you went to God. You don't have anything that you can point to and say, God gave me, it's just you brought this dream to God and you're being demanded that he wants to do it. It might be that he's saying to you, that's not your destiny. You're going to live in regret for the rest of your life. Until you're willing to step into a conversation like Peter did with Jesus and let me give you the dream that you're supposed to have. Peter wanted to rule with Jesus in a political kingdom, but his calling and his destiny was to pastor for Jesus in a spiritual kingdom. He wasn't called to rule, he was called to love and to lead and to care and to teach, to minister. And in this moment, on this beach, Peter finds a new dream that he can give his life for. We'll invite the worship team to come back up. If you're here tonight and the dream that, that you're holding on to is a dream that is unrealized, I'm not saying tonight that it's not God's dream for you. What I am saying tonight is ask him the question. Just be willing to say, God, just be Peter. God, is this dream that I have in my hands, is this your dream for me? Is this your dream for me? Because if, it, if it's not, would you give me the dream that I'm supposed to hold on to? Would you give me the dream that I'm supposed to believe you for? Would you give me the dream that I want my heart to ache to fulfill? I want to live the dream that you have for me. So I had lunch with Steve on, on Friday. We get together once a month, Steve Ruggiero and I, and it's part of what he has to suffer through doing his internship with me. So I'm telling him about, you know, hey, I think I'm switching everything up, right? It was still, still pretty fresh. And so I'm telling him about the story when I get to the last part, you know, his, his, I see his eyes getting really big. He says, bro, that's my whole message to the men, right? If you were there at the men's breakfast this morning, he was talking about all these things, about an unrealized dream and regrets. And I was like, oh, so God is on somebody's trail this weekend, right? And, and in his message, he's preaching in, in February. It might be that you've got to preach that to the whole church. He said, hey, Fred, have you ever heard of the ABCs of mediocrity? I said, no, I don't know the list, but sometimes I live in that place, I think. The ABCs of mediocrity, I'm just going to throw these out at you just to whet your appetite. Aimlessness, which is a day-to-day -day lack of direction and purpose. Boredom, unchecked boredom leads to laziness and apathy. Comfort. When comfort becomes the goal of life, we cannibalize future potential for the sake of of temporary stability, and this is true in all areas of our lives. Deceit, D, 
a lack of self-awareness for your weakness. E, ego, pride and inflexibility. Fear, the fear of failure or of falling short or not measuring up. And G, guardedness, which leads to isolation. Stand with me. Father, we don't want to live a mediocre life. We, we know, God, that there's going to come a moment in time for, for all of us where, like Sean, it's going to be our last day. They're going to be our last moments. And may it be, God, that, that tonight that we've heard something, that you've inspired our hearts in some way, that we've found courage, even if it's just a small measure, to say, I'm not going to take that regret with me to my final day. I'm going to do something about it this year. And that every person in here is willing to take a hard, honest look at their life, whether it's an unconfessed sin or an unforgiven offense or whether it's an unrealized dream, that, that all of us together are going to move into this year and say, God, I want to take down one of the Goliath regrets of my life for me and for the world that surrounds me, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.